Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for being here with us today. I, I am Dana Nucitelli, uh, CCL Research Coordinator. I'm also an environmental scientist and a climate journalist. I've been writing about climate change since 2010 for Skeptical Science, The Guardian, and Yale Climate Connections. And I joined the Sacramento chapter of CCL about 10 years ago and the awesome CCL national staff a little over a year ago now. So I have the privilege of telling you about CCL's policy agenda heading into 2023. Uh, which is Madeline highlighted, uh, comprises these four uh, items that I'm going to talk about, uh, permitting reform, building efficiency and electrification, carbon pricing, and healthy forests. And then we'll have about 10 minutes at the end for questions. So if any questions pop into your head, use that Q&A button at the bottom of your window there. So you may be asking, uh, why the change? Why aren't we just focusing solely on carbon pricing? Uh, so there are no silver bullets when it comes to climate change solutions. Carbon pricing is the most important and effective single climate policy, but we also need some complementary solutions if we're going to get down to net zero emissions. And CCL has grown to the point where we're confident we can now tackle multiple important climate solutions uh, among our staff and our great volunteers. So as Madeline mentioned, uh, our criteria for these solutions is that they must be effective at reducing net greenhouse gas emissions, and they must facilitate building bridges with Congress and building bridges in our communities. So I'm really excited about this policy agenda because this is exactly why I joined CCL. Uh, so you know, about 10 years ago when I was writing about climate change, most of what I was doing was debunking climate myths which was a lot like playing a game of whack-a-mole where some prominent individual would say, you know, global warming is not happening, it's just a hoax. And so I'd have to get on the blog and write about how, yes, global warming is happening, here's the evidence and whack that mole. And then some other prominent individual would say, global warming, it's happening, but it's being caused by galactic cosmic rays. And so I have to get on the blog and write about galactic cosmic rays, which are really cool, but they're not responsible for global warming and whack that mole. And then, you know, somebody would bring a snowball onto the floor of the Senate, and I'd have to stay up late writing an article about how, you know, winter is still a real thing, and whack, whack, whack that mole. And so, you know, whacking moles, it's, it's kind of a little satisfying in the short term, but it's also really frustrating because, you know, the moles, they just keep popping up. They don't go away. And so, you know, we're not, I felt like we weren't making any progress in solving the problem. And so I joined CCL so that I could work on concrete, specific, effective climate solutions. And so now we've got four of these we're gonna work on. And we finally had this major success in federal climate policy legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'll do a Sunday seminar tomorrow talking more about the IRA. But when it passed, it was like, for me, it was a real weight lifted off my shoulders because you know we've gone for so long with with so little success, and I was starting to worry about, you know, are we going to be able to avert this climate crisis? And so finally, we got this major bill passed that's going to have significant success in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and I feel a lot better now. And so you guys, our volunteers, did so much work to help get that over the finish line. We've got a nice list of the work that you guys did, you know, meetings with congressional offices, emails, phone calls, letters to the editor, op-eds, so much work to get this major climate solution legislation over the finish line. 
And so I wanted to thank everybody for their work on that because that was really important. But the IRA needs some help. And that is basically the crux of our policy agenda going into 2023. So for example, uh, the energy models modelers at the Princeton repeat team uh, found in an analysis after the IRA was passed that if we don't start building clean energy infrastructure faster, we'll only achieve about 20% of the potential carbon pollution reduction from the policies in the IRA. And so a key there is clean energy permitting reform, one of our new agenda items. Uh, so it's time to build America's clean energy economy. Permitting reform will make that possible by unlocking clean energy infrastructure that's waiting to be built and by getting that clean energy to American households and businesses. So we've got a couple of shiny new training pages on permitting reform, cclusa.org slash permitting dash training and dash advanced. Uh, Rick Knight on the research team did some great work on that advanced training page. So I would encourage everybody to check those out. So let's talk about some basics. What even is permitting? So a permit is an official authorization from a government to begin a construction project, basically a green light from either a local and or a state and or a federal government uh, to start working on a new project. Uh, depending on the size and the location, it may be uh, local, state and or federal permitting. And so permits are really important because they protect communities and workers' environments from undue harm from the construction of the project or the project itself. But of course, obtaining a permit adds time and expense to a project. And so there's this balancing act that we have to strike where we're doing uh, you know, really good uh, permits and uh, environmental assessments to make sure that we're protecting uh, communities and workers' and environments while not taking too long to and delaying these clean energy infrastructure projects that we have to deploy really quickly. So one issue is that right now we're only expanding our electric transmission infrastructure at 1% per year uh, over the past decade. In previous decades, it was faster and more like 2% per year. So we need to speed that back up to that previous rate of build outs. Uh, that's because in order to get to net zero emissions by 2050, which is one of our Paris commitments, we need to triple our capacity to transmit clean electricity in the United States uh, over the next you know, 30 years or so. So we're going to have to build a lot of new transmission infrastructure. The challenge is that right now, on average, transmission line projects take over a decade to build in the United States. In 2030, we're trying to have our emissions by 2030. That is now about seven years away. It takes 10 years to build a transmission line. And so you can see there's a bit of a math problem there. We need to speed up. Uh, those transmission line projects to meet our Paris targets. So the good news is that thanks to the IRA, we're expecting a big explosion in solar and wind projects in the United States. Uh, one statistic that blows my mind is that we currently have about 230 gigawatts of solar and wind electricity in the United States. And we're projecting that thanks to the IRA tax credits, we're going to build another 740 gigawatts by 2030. So if you picture all these solar panels and wind turbines in the United States right now, built over the past 20 years or so, triple that, and we're going to build and install all that in the next seven years. It's kind of a mind-blowing thing that we're just accelerating so much with this clean energy. The challenge is that big wind and solar farms, they tend to be located in rural areas uh, out in the countryside where there is a lot of uh, land available that's affordable. 
Whereas where we need most of that electricity to go is the population centers, cities that are far away. And so basically you need transmission lines to connect those wind farms and solar farms to the population centers that need the electricity, but transmission lines are taking a decade to build. So this is a really important issue for uh, disadvantaged communities. Right now, air pollution causes about 250,000 deaths per year in the United States. That is especially in disadvantaged communities located near big pollution sources like coal power plants, for example. And so if we're not successful in doing this clean energy infrastructure build out and replacing those dirty fossil fuel pollution sources, then they will keep burning fossil fuel producing air pollution in those communities, resulting in thousands of needless premature deaths that we could avoid if we could transition to the clean energy sources. The good news is that right now, most of what we're building and what are, we are planning to build is clean energy. 93% of the proposed electricity capacity, that's we call it in the queue waiting to be built, is wind and solar energy in the United States. Another good bit of news is that global fossil fuel demand, according to several different expert analysis groups, is projected to peak within the next couple of years by 2025, if not sooner, if it hasn't already peaked, because countries like the US have passed all these policies to transition to these clean electricity sources. And so now the demand for the fossil fuels is going to start going down. And so what all that means is that if we can uh, pass some solutions to make the permitting process go faster in general, that will mostly benefit clean energy solutions, because that is what the demand's for right now. That's what we got all the tax incentives for, and the demand for fossil fuels globally is starting to decline. And so to touch on that importance for disadvantaged communities a little bit more, I've got this chart. It's from, again, the Princeton Energy Modeling Group looking at how much coal will burn in the United States in 2030 in different scenarios. So the red one on the left here is a scenario prior to the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. That's how much coal we would have been burning in 2030. The gray bar is after the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. If we continue to build out our transmission infrastructure at the same rate of 1% per year, then we'll be burning this much coal. It's actually a larger amount. The reason for that is because the Inflation Reduction Act has some great incentives for people to get electric cars and electric heat pumps and electric stoves and all these things that are going to increase the demand for electricity. But if we're not able to deploy this clean energy infrastructure with solar panels, wind turbines, and transmission lines, then that increased electricity demand has to be met by something else. And that ends up being fossil fuels, coal, and natural gas. And to so actually end up burning more coal in that scenario which again is really bad for the disadvantaged communities living near those coal power plants. Conversely, if we are able to speed up our clean electricity or our transmission infrastructure, then we will get to these bars on the right, 1.5 or 2% or better per year will then decrease the amount of coal we have to burn because then we will be able to connect all those new wind turbines and solar panels to the grid, phase out the fossil fuels, and then we get a reduction in coal consumption and a reduction in both carbon pollution and also other air pollutants that are really bad for people's health. So that's why it's really important that we get this permitting reform done. So how do we do that? Uh, there's a few different ways. We've accomplished some already. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that was passed about a year ago through Congress and the IRA 
had some law changes and some funding for federal agencies to do uh, environmental reviews and the permitting process. So hopefully they can do those reviews faster and speed things up a little bit. Uh, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commercial, uh, Commission, uh, FERCalicious FERC, is doing some proposed rules that will hopefully open up some bottlenecks to make the permitting process happen a little faster. And then there's federal law changes that Congress can do through some kind of permitting reform package. So that's where CCL comes in, where we can advocate and let our members of Congress know that this is really important for us and for them to get done. So specifically, CCL supports policies in this area that add to America's capacity to transmit clean electricity, that speed up the approval of clean energy projects that are waiting to be built, and that we still preserve communities' ability to make their voices heard on the environmental and other impacts of proposed energy projects. So that's that area. And then our next area that is related to the IRA is building electrification and efficiency. So by upgrading our homes and buildings to electric and making them more energy efficient, we can save money and eliminate a major source of carbon and indoor air pollution. So again, we've got some new training pages on this topic, cclusa.org slash building dash electrification dash training and dash advanced. Uh, Jonathan Marshall on the research team put a lot of great information on that advanced training page. So again, I would encourage everybody to check those out when you have the opportunity. And so the good news is the IRA had a lot of great funding to help uh, us in this policy area. Uh, they're especially great for low and middle income households. 100% of the costs of upgrades to uh, efficiency and electrification for households are covered for low income households up to $14,000 plus tax credits and 50% of those costs are covered for middle income households. So how do you know what you qualify for? There is this great calculator that the group Rewiring America put together. Uh, we put a, we made a, a short URL, cclusa.org slash IRA calc will take you there. And so then you just put in your zip code, homeowner status, household income, tax filing status and household size. And it will tell you all the different incentives that you qualify for, whether they are tax credits or rebates, how large they are, and when they come into effect. And it takes into account uh, calculating whether you are a low or middle income household. And so it's a really great tool for educating people about which of these incentives they qualify for and can take advantage of. And so we would encourage everybody to educate as many people as they can about this calculator so that we can get these building solutions deployed. So overall, uh, let's look at where building emissions come from. Uh, this chart shows in the dark blue on the bottom, residential household uh, emissions, uh, burning fossil fuels, and uh, the light blue is commercial buildings. And so on the left, you can see the total fossil fuel use in buildings. And then the first bar there is space heating. Uh, so that's basically your furnace uh, connected to your thermostat. That accounts for two thirds of the direct uh, fossil fuel use in buildings and homes. And then uh, in homes, another quarter or so is from water heaters. We have a lot of natural gas water heaters. And then another 10% or so is from natural gas stoves and things like clothes dryers. Um, but the bulk of fossil fuel use in buildings is from space heating and water heating. So if we can tackle those, we can get a long ways towards reducing building emissions. And the good news is that we have a great solution there. They're heat pumps which are super awesome. I love heat pumps. Uh, basically what they do is they move heat around from hot air to cold and vice versa. 
uh, very efficiently so they can both heat and cool the air in a building. Uh, they're very much like an air conditioner. An air conditioner is basically a heat pump that cools a building, but an air conditioner doesn't also warm a building, whereas a heat pump does both. Uh, so you don't need a separate air conditioning unit and a furnace. You just need one heat pump uh, that can move heat indoors or outdoors. And it does it very efficiently. And so it can also save households on monthly electricity and energy bills. And another great way to save on energy bills is through household weatherization, because up to 20% of the money spent on home energy by average American households is wasted just as heat or cold air uh, leaving the house going into the surrounding air uh, leaking out. And so weatherization uh, of homes reduces the, that energy waste and thereby reduces energy bills. Uh, it's especially true for low-income households, which spend a disproportionate amount of their income on energy bills. So they could save up to 35% on energy bills through weatherization projects, uh, which is doing things like improving insulation and uh, windows and installing smart thermostats, uh, things like that can save on energy and on bills. And then of course, carbon pricing remains a centrally important component of our policy agenda. We advocate for a carbon fee and dividend with a carbon border adjustment mechanism to lower emissions and deliver abundant and affordable clean energy to Americans. Uh, again, we have a new training page, cclusa.org slash carbon-pricing-training. So I won't talk too much about carbon pricing because most of you guys are already experts on carbon pricing, uh, but a carbon price on carbon pollution can impact every sector of the economy. It gets straight to the source of the problem. Uh, corporate polluters should pay a fee for the carbon pollution that will result from the burning of the fossil fuels that they sell. And there are some good benefits, uh, but uh, overall, a carbon uh, price would be the single most effective emissions reductions policy that we could pass. Carbon cash back, as we know, is key. The dividends, uh, carbon cash back payments are enough to essentially cover the increased costs for 85% of American households. That includes almost all of the lower and middle income American households. And it has the benefit if you do a 100% uh, rebates that a carbon fee and dividend policy will uh, both reduce income inequality and raise a lot of Americans above the poverty line. There was a study uh, last year that found that a 100% carbon fee and dividend policy would raise 1.6 million Americans above the poverty line. So there's a lot of great benefits from this policy. And then there's the carbon border adjustment mechanism component, CBAMs. So we are lucky that American manufacturing is already among the cleanest and lowest carbon in the world. So the idea with a CBAM is that when you import a product from another country across the border that is a relatively high carbon content product, you put a price on that extra carbon content. So that levels the playing field for businesses that have not taken steps or that have taken steps to clean up their operations. So they don't have a disadvantage because uh, compared to foreign businesses that have not taken steps to reduce their carbon content. So while we work to reduce carbon pollution in the United States, we don't want other countries who don't do the same to get a free ride. So we will be talking probably a lot more about CBAMs in the coming Congress. And last but not least, uh, the fourth policy I'll be talking about is healthy forests. So to solve climate change, we need America's forests to pull carbon out of the air. We support preserving and expanding forests, climate smart forestry, 
and advocating for increasing urban forests with a focus on the neighborhoods that are negatively impacted by a lack of tree equity. Again, new training pages, cclusa.org slash forest dash training and dash advanced, which I put a lot of work into that page. So definitely check that one out. So forests have the potential to achieve significant carbon reductions. They can address both mitigation by pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and adaptation, for example, by, by providing shade and cooling uh, to offset increasing extreme heat. So there are many potential co-benefits like that. We also have a lot of potential coalition partners that are working on forest and tree solutions. And there is bipartisan support for healthy forest solutions because everyone loves trees. And I was trying to think of how to test that hypothesis that everybody loves trees. And so I came up with a thought experiment and I asked myself if there was one individual who would be the least likely to love trees, who would that be? And I think all lovers of great literature and cinema will agree that that is the Grinch because as we know, the Grinch's heart is two sizes too small. And so then I looked for evidence about how the Grinch feels about trees and the evidence indicates that even the Grinch loves trees, ipso facto, everyone loves trees, case closed. So uh, when talking about natural solutions like healthy forests, I like to use the bathtub analogy where the bathtub is the atmosphere, the water in the bathtub is greenhouse gases and it's already overtopping the tub and doing damage to our planet bathroom. And so to solve the problem, there's kind of two ways to go about it. Uh, the first way is to turn down and eventually turn off the faucets, uh, reducing the water or the greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. So we're doing that through our carbon pricing, permitting reform, and building electrification and efficiency policy areas. And then the other thing you can do is open up the drain and let the water out, pull the carbon out of the atmosphere. That's what we do with our natural solutions like healthy forests. So it's kind of a different category of solving the same problem. So healthy forests have a lot of potential as a solution. Our forests currently remove about 12% of US carbon pollution every year. We could grow that number by almost doubling, a grow by another 10% with forest solutions. About half of that potential is from reforestation, which is planting trees in areas that used to have trees. Uh, half of that reforestation potential is from silvopasture, which is planting trees on pasture land. Uh, that's especially got a lot of potential in the south, in the eastern and southeastern states, where we have a lot of land that a long time ago is forest and now is pasture land. And so that's a lot of land that we can plant trees on. And it's also an area that's seeing more and more extreme heat. And so those trees can also provide shade for the livestock. And so it's kind of a win-win solution. Uh, CCL staffers will tell you that I'm slightly obsessed with silvopasture, but I think it's a healthy obsession. Um, so we're going to work on that, hopefully. Uh, the next biggest chunk of the reforestation potential in the United States is from urban trees. So talk about that a little more in the next slide. Most of the rest of our healthy forest potential comes from better forest management practices, which are things like letting trees grow older and bigger before harvesting them for wood products, uh, harvesting them in a way that has less impact on the surrounding forest and soil so they store more carbon. Uh, also doing forest management to lessen the threat of wildfires in places like where I'm in California, the smaller the wildfires are, uh, the less they'll uh, re release carbon into the atmosphere. So doing things like prescribed burns are all good solutions. 
And then there are, of course, really a lot of benefits for urban trees and urban tree equity. So trees improve air quality and provide cooling, which is especially important in cities because we're seeing more and more extreme heat waves. And then in cities, you've got all this concrete and asphalt absorbing and radiating heat, so it gets particularly hot. So you want that shade that the trees can provide uh, for cooling services. This raises the issue of tree equity, though, because communities of color have 33% less tree canopy than predominantly white neighborhoods in the United States, and poor communities have 41% less tree canopy than wealthy neighborhoods in the United States. And so we can kind of solve this problem while addressing this tree inequity problem. And it's really important because research, including a paper just published this week, uh, shows that mortality rates are lower in communities that plant more trees because trees provide all kinds of benefits uh, these cooling services, uh, reducing air pollution, uh, just uh, aesthetically pleasing uh, services. And so there's lots of benefits that help people live longer and healthier lives. And then there are durable wood products like engineered timber buildings. Uh, those have lower carbon footprints than if you build a building with steel or concrete or plastic. So you can reduce the construction emissions of a building by a quarter to a third by using durable wood products. And then in addition to reducing the carbon footprints of the construction, that wood will then store the carbon uh, that it's contained for decades or even a century, basically as long as the wood is intact and the building is intact and doesn't decay. And so it's kind of a double benefit for reducing carbon emissions. And what's really nice is the IRA included $100 million for wood innovation grants. And so we're gonna hopefully be finding even more solutions uh, for durable wood products. All right, so now uh, I'm gonna do like the grand finale, which as a good nerd, I put in chart form. So this right here is a chart of US emissions to date, greenhouse gas emissions from 2005 through 2022 in the blue. You can see it's gone down a little bit thanks to coal being phased out by cleaner electricity sources. The black dotted line across the middle is a 50% cut below 2005 levels. That is our 2030 Paris commitments. So right now we're on track for a path something like this. There's a lot of uncertainty here, but we're on track for something in the ballpark of 28% cuts by 2030, well short of our Paris commitments. But if we can succeed with permitting reform through federal agencies doing things to make permitting process faster and congressional legislation, a permitting package through Congress to accelerate the process, then we can unlock those emissions reductions benefits from the IRA and get to somewhere in the ballpark of 40% cuts by 2030, uh, which is a really big improvement, not quite to our Paris commitment, but a lot closer. And then if we get, get on top of that, get a carbon price passed, that would get us all the way to meeting our Paris commitment, which of course would be amazing, but we don't have to stop there. We could also pass some policies to get healthy forests, uh, pull some more carbon out of the atmosphere, get another chunk of net emissions reductions that way. And then we could also get some building electrification and efficiency solutions implemented, get people to get more heat pumps and more insulation and things like that, reduce emissions even further. And so overall, if we're able to implement our entire agenda that we've put forth, uh, we're trying to get some, we could potentially get somewhere in the ballpark of 60% uh, cuts by 2030 really make our Paris commitment look like small potatoes. Uh, so it's a really ambitious goal, uh, but of course we like being ambitious in CCL. So that is what we're aiming for. That's what we're gonna try to do 
starting in 2023. So I will stop there. Here's my information. If you want to ask any questions, you can also come to the Nerd Corner, cclusa.org slash nerd dash corner. Come uh, join the research team over there and ask us some questions. And uh, Keston, let me know if people have any questions that you would like me to answer. Absolutely. Thank you, Dana. So we just have uh, a little bit over 10 minutes for questions, and we'll start with our most upvoted question, which is asking if we have any measurable goals for how we're going to track progress or success on engaging on this, um, the, this policy priority. Yeah, I mean, each policy area is going to have its own things to track. So we can, for example, track how many heat pumps are sold and installed in households, how many homes are weatherized successfully, um, whether we're able to pass carbon pricing through Congress or how many states are able to pass carbon pricing legislation, um, whether Congress can get anything done on permitting reform, how much the federal agencies can get done so we can keep an eye on how much transmission we're building and how, if it's getting built any more quickly. Than it was in the past, we can kind of keep track of like how many miles of transmission lines are built every year, uh, how many trees we're building, things like that. If we're increasing the amount of forested land in the United States through reforestation. So, yes, there's a lot of stuff that we can track for each individual policy area. Great. Um, we also had a number of folks asking how CCL chose certain policy areas over others, but the question that kept coming up. Uh, was regarding the transportation sector. And we're just curious why CCL has decided not to engage specifically on the transportation sector and how it compares to the impact of building electrification. Yes, I mean, one good thing is that the Inflation Reduction Act had all these tax incentives for EVs, uh, tax credits. And so we're expecting a lot more people to buy EVs, electric cars, as their prices keep coming down and as we get these tax credits. Um, and then so there's kind of a limited amount that CCL can contribute in that particular space, whereas we just felt we could do more in these other areas. Um, and so the criteria are they have to achieve significant emissions reductions, which all of our areas do, and they have to be able to build uh, build support among different uh, communities and different members of Congress. And so, you know, there's a lot of different policies that we considered and that we could choose, but these are the four that we're going with for now. Absolutely. And I'll just echo that we wish we did, but we don't have the capacity to take on everything at once. Um, also, we're also getting a question that, you know, since we're working on this, uh, or more policy agenda items, um, what are there any opportunities to partner with other organizations or combine the involvement that volunteers have with other organizations? Specifically, we have a question from Henry saying that he's involved in the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, and they've started to focus on decarbonization. And is there anything there where we could combine efforts? Yes, yeah, certainly. Like if you know an existing group like that that's working on building electrification and efficiency, you can work with them. One thing we need to do in that area is to educate people, again, so that they know about these tax incentives and uh, rebates that they can take advantage of. And so a lot of that area is going to be in terms of education and so we can partner with groups working in that area to have you know talks and things like that events that will educate the public i think another great area for coalitions is healthy forest because there's a lot of groups that are already working on forest uh, solutions like there's a sierra club there's the nature conservancy 
there's like a lot of local groups that are working that have like tree planting activities. There's like the Girl Scouts is doing a big tree planting push. So there's a lot of opportunities in that area to do coalitions and work on projects together with, uh, with other groups. Perfect. And then sort of to build on that, we're also getting some questions on how can chapters working at the more local level engage with this policy agenda? And we've specifically gotten the question regarding um, clean energy permitting reform. Yeah, I mean, permitting reform is a tricky one, but like there's always, you know, you can always, you know, there's meetings by uh, public utility commissions that are always considering like whether to build what kinds of new infrastructure to build. And so you can go to your local public utility commission. That's not something that CCL National is going to be working on, but it's something that local chapters can do. Um, so yeah, on a, on a national level, uh, we're working on, with Congress, we're working on permitting reform, but on a local level, there's things like that you can do to kind of encourage uh, local projects to succeed and not be blocked. And then, like I said, with, with forests, there's a lot of potential uh, local projects that uh, individual chapters can work on in coalitions with other groups in their local area. Okay. And we have a question from James asking if you can expand a bit on who and what are the barriers to permitting reform right now? There are a lot of different barriers to permitting reform. Uh, that is a very complex topic. I did a CCU on it uh, just recently that you can watch, uh, but there is, uh, there's kind of different barriers for different components. There's like long distance transmission lines that we need uh, that one uh, really helpful thing would be if we could get FERC the authority to permit states uh, to, that per long distance transmission lines that go through multiple states, which they can do for natural gas pipelines, but they can't do for electric transmission lines. Uh, so that would really speed things up so that these projects don't need individual permits from each state that they go through. Uh, so that's just one example. But then locally, there's like not in my backyard opposition. There's a lot of misinformation about people who think that wind turbines and solar panels are bad for their health or bad for aesthetics or for whatever reason. So they try to block these projects on a local level. And so there's like national level solutions, there's local level solutions, there's state level solutions. And so it's a very complex issue topic with a lot of different roadblocks in the way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've also gotten a question regarding carbon pricing. Um, how do we counter the argument that carbon pricing will increase the cost of gasoline? Uh, and in the context of this recent spike in gas prices that we've seen and, you know, where our economy is at the moment and, and that sort of messaging, how do we respond to that? Yeah, so, I mean, one potential option, and it depends on what members of Congress want to do when they're uh, drafting the carbon pricing legislation, but we can do an exemption for gasoline. That was one thing that was proposed in the latest uh, Congress when they were thinking about passing a price on carbon was to exempt gasoline, which actually has a pretty small effect on the net greenhouse gas emissions uh, from a carbon price because it doesn't have a huge effect on transportation sector. So you would still get most of the emissions reductions without impacting gas prices. Um, so that is one way to do it. Okay. Um, we also have a question on um, how low income households might not be able to access energy efficiency programs because their homes don't pass required inspections to qualify. Do you happen to know how common this is and if there are any efforts that are currently being taken to address that part of the problem? That is a tough question. I don't really know the answer to that one. I think you stumped me a little bit. <laughs> yeah, these are very complex issues. <laughs> Can't yeah, expect you to know the answer to all of these. Um, let's see. We've also got a question on natural gas. Uh, some states have passed laws that say natural gas appliances cannot be eliminated 
are replaced by electric appliances, how could we handle that uh, pushback? Yeah, that's tricky. There's a lot of kind of competition here on the local and state level. So some cities have banned natural gas hookups in new buildings, and then some states have banned cities from, from banning natural gas hookups in new buildings. Uh, so that's not an area where we're engaging because that's kind of a local level issue. Um, but, you know, again, if, if individual chapters and members want to uh, engage at their local level and work on this kind of legislation to uh, address these types of bans, then that is up to them. They're, they're free to do that. Great. Um, and I do just want to give a flag that we have a couple minutes left, so we're only going to do a few more questions. Um, we have a question from Lori asking about the impact of localized solar and wind generating electricity and if that would help cut the length of transmission lines and uh, if that would impact the time that it would take to actually build those lines. Yeah, so we call this distributed energy if it's like rooftop solar or built in parking lots, for example, so then it's already in the cities and the population centers that have that big demand for clean electricity. And so then you don't need these long distance transmission lines. So that is a great solution. I mean, the problem is there's only so much space in a city to build new solar panels or wind turbines. Um, and so that will be part of the solution. But it's, as, as I mentioned, we're going to be building so, so much new wind and solar over the next seven years that that's not enough. We still need to build a lot of these large wind farms and solar farms out in rural areas where there is more land available and more affordable land to be able to do that. And so it's kind of a, a yes and, like, yes, we need to build more distributed solar and wind, and we need to build these big wind farms that will also need these long distance transmission lines. So we need to do both things. Okay, great. And we also have a more general question along the same vein where we're gonna kind of ask you to look into your crystal ball a little bit and, and uh, give us sort of a approximation, but there's a question, how feasible is it to accelerate the construction of transmission lines in time to meet the 2030 goals? I get that depends on how quickly we can get these permitting reform changes passed. Now, like I said, we've already got some of them in the works right now from the IRA, from the bipartisan infrastructure bill, from FERC and federal agencies doing what they can do. So hopefully that will pretty quickly start to accelerate the process, and then it depends on how quickly we can get permitting reform passed in Congress. Um, there's a possibility it could happen in this lame duck session, or otherwise we're going to work on it in the next Congress. So if we can get it done quickly enough, then that will accelerate this process of getting these permits reviewed more quickly and these environmental assessments reviewed more quickly. And so there is still the potential we could do it fast enough to meet our 2030 targets. Okay. Um, we also have a question, um, if there's a possibility to integrate microgrid technology to help mitigate the huge task of transmission line build out that's needed. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty similar to the distributed uh, solar and winds question and answer. Again, it's a yes and, like the more local renewable energy we can get deployed, I mean, then we need less of the large wind and solar farms. We still, we really, we're building so, so much of this stuff that we need as much both distributed local and long distance large wind and solar farms as we can get. Like we're trying to get to like, eventually get to net zero emissions. And so it's a really, really big change in our entire energy infrastructure and economy. And so it's gonna take everything that we can do. And again, it's the yes and we need that. And we need the big wind and solar farms with the long distance transmission lines too. Okay, well, we have just uh, under one minute. So I'll end with asking, um, is there any part of this policy agenda that you're most excited about, Dana? 
Oh, shoot. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I personally, I really like forest solutions because there's so much potential both on the local level with local projects and on the national level to do this reforestation. And of course, silvopasture, as I mentioned, I'm a little obsessed with silvopasture. And so I'm particularly excited about that because it's got a lot of different benefits, both for the climate and for local cities and uh, underserved communities. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dana. That was our last question for this session. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.